Welcome back to The Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness, help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's fantastic conversation. This is someone that I have grown to respect very much since getting into his work. His name is Dr. Ethan Cross. He is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind, or I'd say gaining a relationship with the conscious mind. He's an award-winning professor at the University of Michigan and the Ross School of Business. He's the director of the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. He has participated in policy discussion in the White House and has been interviewed on CBS Evening News, Good Morning America, and PR's Morning Edition. He's in Wall Street Journal. He's all over the place. He's got a PhD at Columbia University. He's incredible. He's got a book referred to as Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It. That is what this conversation is about, harnessing that voice in our head. Where is it? Who is it? Where is it coming from? How do we gain a relationship with that? I think you guys are going to enjoy it, and I appreciate you tuning in. I want to thank you for leaving reviews wherever you listen to this, Spotify, iTunes, whatever, Apple Podcasts. I'm going to read one from Colby. This says, Aaron is inspiring. Uh, five stars. I've followed the Align podcast and Aaron's Instagram exercise for over three years. I am consistently inspired to achieve my own health goals as a result. Uh, I want to thank you all, y'all, for leaving us reviews and for just the, the general support for tuning in, for engaging with these conversations, sharing them, subscribing, all of that stuff. Let's get to it with my new friend, Dr. Ethan Cross. What do you do when you're stressed out, Dr. Cross? Uh, what do I do when I'm stressed out? I, uh, yeah, when you're having like a, like a moment, you start feel yourself like bubbling over. Oh, I, I have I do a lot of those. I do a lot of things. Go for a walk. I cook. I talk to myself using my name. Depends on on the degree of stressed outedness. Mm, all right. How about well, you? When was the last time you what, well? So all right. So something I I do. We're recording right now, by the way. This is a podcast. But, but something that I I um, I don't do any kind of like intro welcome. I always find that kind of like contrived and strange. Mm-hmm. But getting outside be a good one. Just walking, leveraging our senses. I think is an interesting thing as a as a tool to regulate our autonomic yeah. state. Absolutely. You know, so that's, I mean, I think that's a big part of your book and your work. And uh, that's actually, that's a big part of the book that I did as well. So I, th- I think there's a lot of interesting congruences here. Absolutely. It'd be fun to, fun to see where those are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I, so I guess an interesting starting point would be where are the, what are some of the kind of like movement-based kinesiological kinetic, you know, like what are the the physical toggles that, that you would pull on to change your, your state? I mean, certainly getting out, going for a walk in nature, and in particular, like a walk in nature that has the chance of allowing me to feel the emotion of awe. That's something I try to do. So so let me break down why I do that. We know from lots of research that nature can be restorative. It doesn't just feel good. it, It actually helps replenish our attention, which we know our stress and chatter levels consume. And so just exposing yourself to green space can be really helpful in that regard. But then there's this added potential benefit you can get from nature, which is nature's filled with what I call awe triggers. Awe is this emotion that we feel when we're in the presence of something vast and and indescribable, something that seems bigger than ourselves. So like an amazing sunset or 
you know, for me, it's even, there's an arboretum a couple of blocks from my house, just, just walking through the arboretum, there are some signs on it about how old some of the trees are. And I just like, I marvel at like some of these trees are hundreds of years old. Like that's amazing. Like think of all the pandemics that they've weathered. And here's what we know about when people experience awe. It leads to what we call a shrinking of the self. So we feel smaller when we're contemplating something vast and indescribable. And when we feel smaller, so do our our worries and our chatter. So I try to put myself in a position to feel that emotion whenever I can. Hmm. That's great. I think that, that that's something that I've tried to wrap my mind around many times of, of what the function of these awe-inspiring sights are in nature. I, I think there's a poem, I think it's like George Bernard Shaw has a poem about this. I tried to look it up. I couldn't find the exact the exact poem. So someone has a poem about. about oh yeah, if, if there are no if there's no poetry about awe in in the but natural particular, world, but no, but yeah. par- particularly the almost like flagrant, superfluous showing off. Like that's just that wave as it's cresting and the mist coming off and the rainbow and the, mm. the whales. And the, like it's just not necessary. Like you, it was already beautiful. That's right. Yeah, you that's just need that's to just add rubbing the it in. And, you're just rubbing it in. Like yeah. It's almost arrogant. Totally. Well, you know, it's, but it's, <laughs> it, it's those poets, you know. They well, just that, need to, nat- that, nat- that nature, like, what are you, what are you doing to us? Like, what's the, what's the evolutionary function of things being so darn pretty sometimes? But it, I, I'm glad you, you, you raised that point about, you know, it has to be that perfect wave cresting because that sets a really high bar, right, for us to find these awe triggers. But in fact, I think you can find these really easily. And you can even do it in your mind when sitting in your own home. So I'm not a particularly handy guy. Like, you know, I'm really good in the lab and I can write. And But when it comes to building things, like I literally cannot start a fire, right? I can't do those kinds of things. It just skipped my generation. My grandfather was a carpenter. It didn't, didn't trickle its way down to me. I'll think about like feats of of human innovation. Like we literally have figured out interplanetary travel. Not too long ago, just a few months ago, we safely landed an SUV-sized vehicle on another planet on Mars that now roams around Mars and broadcasts signal back to us. When I think about that, that has a way of broadening my perspective. Be like, wow, like I'm I'm worried about the email I sent earlier. We're, you know, we're, we're sending vehicles to other planets. Like that has a way of really putting me in perspective and what I'm going through. So you could, you could cultivate that state on your own as well. You don't have to actually find the perfect sunset to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's almost like, I think a lot of things are paradoxical, but particularly you'd think on paper excessive, well, maybe not excessive. That's too much. Just individualism an abundance of individualism, a culture that's highly individualistic. You'd think that that would lead to individuals feeling really good. Like we're doubling down on individualism. The individual should be kicking ass. And then in fact, it's that very focus of on the self. And then that, you know, so that could mean a lot of different things focusing on self that often can create the burdens that we're experiencing. Totally. I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of the, in Western culture, a lot of the chatter we experience, these negative thought loops that we get stuck in are are about getting overly immersed in our own head and our own worries and ruminations. And, 
And one big fix for that involves being able to step outside of ourselves and to think about ourselves from a more detached observer perspective. So it is it, it is a double-edged sword. You know, I think a lot of of life, as you're saying, you know, you're saying paradoxical, but this double-edged sword, I often talk about introspection as a double-edged sword, like the ability to focus our attention inward, to tap into our quote unquote inner voice, to use language, to reflect on our lives. Like this is a remarkable capacity that serves us really, really well in countless situations. But it's also a fragile process. It's a tool that is unwieldy and can also, you know, be the source of a lot of suffering. And so that to me is 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 really fascinating, as is the fact that there's science which which can help steer us to help us figure out how to wield that tool of the mind more effectively. So that, that keeps yeah. me in business. You I think you do a, a really, from my vantage point, a really exceptional job of of bridging the Eastern kind of what can be deemed to be like more esoteric metaphysical, like woo would be mm-hmm. like a prerogative way or, or pejorative way of saying it with the Western analytical, you know, like the religion of science that mm-hmm. we hear in, you know, Western culture largely can hang our hats on, but there's a really, I think there's this, this really beautiful kind of in between space that it seems like you occupy really well. Do you feel like you hang, you lean to one side more than the other, or where do you think you sit in, in those conversations? Um, and I, I like to think of myself as as flexible and equal opportunity, east, east, west. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so you know, I, have a, I have an interesting background in this regard. So I grew up with a dad who was, who was cons- he had two hobbies. Uh, one was watching the Yankees, and I grew up in New York, and the other was reading Eastern philosophy. And you know, he wasn't a college professor or anything like that. Didn't graduate from college, but just was totally consumed with New Ageism and the contemplative traditions. And so he talked to me about that stuff from a really young age. When I was five years old, I desperately wanted a bicycle, and I instead got a transcendental meditation mantra. So. I've been steeped in those traditions for a long time and thinking about them. I, I, I minor in Eastern philosophy as a, a college student, but where I really see there being a lot of value is using the methods of psychology and neuroscience, scientific methodology to look at how certain kinds of Eastern contemplative traditions and practices actually work to see, can we refine them and um, you know, even optimize them in some ways. And so, so I'm happy to talk to folks from from either side of the aisle, so to speak. Yeah, I wonder what your your perspective is on the value of the the very common like negative self talk, like bias towards tearing ourselves down <laughs> inside yeah. of our minds. <laughs> yeah, you know, because it, it's like go on. Yeah, no. Well, I think I think it's it. it I have a nuanced take on it, and so. You know, the first thing I like to to mention is that experiencing negativity, which sometimes the negative self-talk generates, that in and of itself isn't a bad thing. We evolve the capacity to experience negative emotions for a reason. They serve a vital, vital function. If I don't experience a small ping of anxiety before a big presentation, like I don't prepare for it. I'm not energized when I'm on stage. Having that small ping of anxiety is useful. What makes the negative emotions not useful is when they're prolonged, which is exactly what chatter, what I call chatter does. We're experiencing something negative and then we start replaying it over and over and over in our head. 
And that prolongs our negative states in ways that can be truly toxic and dysfunctional. Now, negative self-talk, we often hear that we're our own worst enemy. I think that's exactly true. But that that doesn't mean that sometimes we shouldn't be self-critical. A little bit of self-critique is is actually useful. What we don't want is that inner critic talking all the time. Like when I put my foot in my mouth and do something I shouldn't do, I do need to learn from that experience. Like, yeah, you messed up there. Like that is being a tiny bit critical of ourselves. But what I'm not doing is you're a total shit and you're never going to be good and you suck like you always do. Like that's when we're getting into really negative territory. That is really the province of chatter. And that I think folks want to figure out how to manage. It's interesting even identifying the concept of self because in this conversation, it seems like we're kind of talking for each of us, we're talking about at least two people. There's the observer self and then, you know, know, you're observing the chatter. So there's just in like the linguistics of it, there's at least two which is interesting. And then and then within that the reason I'm 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 asking that is it seems like a big part of of most conversations like this it's about coming into a relationship with. So I wonder just where do you where does your head go with that? Yeah. Well, you know, like the the splitting if you will, like self as object kind of stuff is what yeah. you're referring to. Yeah, it, yeah. I, well, I think this this ability to to step outside of ourselves and to relate to ourselves almost like someone else is a really powerful capacity that we we've evolved to possess one of my favorite tools for my own chatter when i find it beginning to to brew is i i actually use language to help switch my perspective so i will try to coach myself through a problem using my own name and the second person pronoun you this is a strategy science based called distant self-talk i'll think to myself Ethan, how are you going to manage a situation? And and that involves this process of of stepping of, of really splitting ourselves and thinking about ourselves as someone else. And it's useful because one of the things that we know is that we're much better at giving advice to other people than we are giving advice to ourselves. Like I'll often ask people, "Hey, has a friend or a loved one come to you with a problem that they're ruminating, worrying about? They don't know what to do. They present the problem to you, and it's really easy for you to coach them through the situation." inevitably all the hands in the audience go up. And so what we've evolved the capacity to do is relate to ourselves like we're giving advice to someone else. And that can be a really useful tool when we're struggling. Yeah. The relationship with yourself, how congruent is a relationship with yourself, with a relationship with a friend or with a partner? It's pretty much the same principles, I think. If there's friction within your relationship with your buddy or your wife or husband, is that like just an outward representation of what's happening internally? I know these these questions are yeah. already kind of like going off the rails. I apologize. It's getting no, no, no. I like it. I like it. There. They make you think, yeah. and it's 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 great. They share some similarities and also some differences. So when I think about when I'm giving you advice, right, uh, or you know, we're, we're hanging out, we're talking. There's a difference between me giving you advice and me giving Ethan advice, right? Like Ethan is when I'm relating to myself as someone else. When I'm talking to myself with my name, I still have privileged access to what is happening in my own mind and body in a way that I don't have privileged access to what is happening in your mind and body. And so I think that that's one way that it changes. You could think about it as being like three points on a continuum. There's how am I feeling right now? How is Ethan feeling? And how is Aaron feeling? And there's a continuum there of distance from the self. 
that characterizes the relationship between those different cells. Just to, to jump a step further on this, this topic, or since we're, we're pinballing along here um, with interesting ideas, you know, I find it really interesting that oftentimes when people are struggling with their mental chatter, they often, you know, if we ask them, hey, to tell us what's going on in your head, people are often embarrassed to even reveal what they're thinking because they're saying and thinking things to themselves that they would never dream of saying or thinking, uh, saying to someone else. And I think that's really fascinating as a contrast between how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to someone else and why sometimes it can be really useful to shift our perspective. I mean, it is true. We, we really go to an extreme with ourselves in a way that isn't productive and in some ways doesn't even seem fair. What do you think the world would look like if we had our thoughts were televised over our heads? Every person, like this is this just the new technology, Google. I think it would be. I, I think it would be terrible. I would hate to live in that world. <laughs> I mean, you know, I wouldn't. Would you want to live in that world? Um, it would be interesting. <laughs> like, be getting to the point. You know, we're well, like, so wow, we've been yeah. hiding around all these barriers. Like, this is what it is. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be a very friendly place. Well, so here's a couple of things to think about on this on this note. We can't, as far as I I, I know and I'm aware. We're not capable of controlling the thoughts that pop into our head and the emotions that spontaneously arise. What we can control quite well is what happens once those thoughts are activated and, and once we experience an emotion that's already triggered. That's a, that's a distinction that I don't know is apparent to everyone. I think it's a really important one, right? Because, hey, sometimes you think things that you're not proud of. But that doesn't, in my mind, mean that you are a bad human being. It means that, to the contrary, you are a human being, right? Like things pop up. It's what you, it's how you engage with those thoughts once they're activated that really determines, I think, the things that matter. So if you're telling me you've got a way of, you know, implanting a, a set of electrodes deep in my, in my cortex and are going to have a, a live stream of the thoughts that are triggering in my head, like I'm going to be in jail probably as I would imagine most, most people us. would yeah. if we're held responsible for every single thing we think about. So, so that's one, one thought that comes to mind. The other thought is, you know, in some way social media is adding an interesting dimension to this, to the answer to this question that you asked me about, because, you know, I've been studying the, how people can manage their mind and, and, and what to do when they experience mental chatter for, for over 20 years. And about 10 or so years ago, maybe a little bit more, once social media really began to take hold, billion, like over a billion people came in touch with a technology that the first thing they see when they log in is a, a, a prompt that says, what is on your mind? So if you, th you could think about Facebook and other social media applications as, a, as a providing us with this giant megaphone for broadcasting what's happening in our mind, and people are availing themselves of it. And in some cases, I think it can have positive consequences, but in many others, negative ones too. So I think social media is really transforming the, how we answer this, this question about, or not this question, but this, this issue of how we you know, share our thoughts with other people. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. Like that, that's, that you've probably heard, I don't know if this is correct or not, but I, I think that your 
Google or advertisements know if a woman is pregnant before she does and yes. various different statistics like that. Like just based off of their behavior, it's like, oh, it seems like your hormones are doing, you know, this thing that's consistent. And uh, I think it's interesting how, like what were you saying, how much shame and, and guilt many people would or do have about the thoughts that organically pop up in, inside of their their minds. And then you have to even like to find the meaning of mind. What do you think the, the well, you might, seems like you have something to say about that. But the other thing is, is I wonder what the, the value of, I've asked this to a lot of different people, but I wonder what the value of that, that like double bind of shame is, or if it's just a burden to us to allow things to just come out as they do. I know that's kind of two threads. Well, I think, I think all emotions are functional when experienced in the right context and to the right degrees. So if you do something shame worthy, you know, there, there can be some value to that experiencing that self, what we call self-conscious emotion, because you could learn from that experience. Like the negativity draws your attention to what happened. And then you can use that negativity as information to help you not repeat that mistake again. Now, the problem with shame is, A, sometimes we let it take over. And so it, it morphs into this perseverative chatter-filled state. Not good. We don't want that. But the other, the other way that shame can be problematic is when it's triggered in the wrong context. And I would, you know, I think this is, this is editorial here, a matter of opinion. But if you're experiencing shame over the thoughts that are popping up in your head, that's an interesting thing to weigh in on, right? Because you don't have control over those thoughts that pop into your head. So if you don't have control over them, what does that mean? Do you have, should you feel shame as a result? Or should the shame be reserved for experiences where you do have some agency and, and you brought this about on your own? I don't have an answer to that question. I know a lot of philosophers who'd love to write dissertations on that topic, but I think it's a really interesting one to ponder. And more generally for, for listeners, I think it's, I think just being aware of this distinction can actually be quite empowering, right? The difference between thoughts and feelings that spontaneously arise in your life that you don't have much control over. And then the issue of what do you do once those thoughts and feelings are triggered or you do have a lot of control? I think that helps just clean up how we relate to ourselves in potentially important ways. Yeah. And I want to get into like, actual utility and the book chatter and, and everything but i think this is just such an like an endlessly interesting road to wander down and then there's the culturally or socially acceptable versions of thinking as well you know yes. so you know, there's i think I've, i think maybe like alan i've heard alan watts have a bit about this but it's suggesting that you know modern day psychologists they're like the high priests of what people are permitted to think and the, and the manner in which they're permitted to think and if you have maybe more I don't know, multiple personalities or maybe some type of schizophrenic type thing, or there's all these different versions. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like that's, we don't allow that in this, in this culture. Not, we don't allow that, but it's like, it's going off of what we deem to be normal. And then to deem something normal, it's like, well, someone had to kind of create that, that structure of, of this is normal. It's like, well, who really defines what normal is? Well, I think that, you know, for me, for me, the, the question has to do with, you know, functionality and suffering and are people right. living in ways that are causing themselves or other people significant degrees of suffering for significant periods of time. 
you know, if that's the case, and that tends to shift us into the territory of wanting to have interventions to just help. You're really talking here about helping humanity when they're really struggling. And I think that's often apparent for folks. But this is all very, very fuzzy. You know, we don't have a blood test that can tell us when we find ourselves in this position, right? It's a, these are subjective states that I think most people are, are, are doing their very best to weigh in on, to, to, you know, not in a top-down paternalistic way. Hey, you know, you are, you are totally diseased and you're not. I think it, it, it tends to be more interactive. But yeah, culture definitely impacts how we think about the terrain we're talking about here. It also impacts how we relate to our thoughts. So, you know, certain religions place more more value on people taking agency over the thoughts that pop into their, their head than others. And, and that can have downstream effects for how people think about themselves and the emotions they experience. So it's all interconnected. You know, sometimes you hear the people use the phrase, culture is like the air we breathe. And it it is tuning the conversations we have with ourselves in really important ways. And I talk a little bit about this in Chatter. If you think about how the conversations we have with ourselves first develop, like what what shape do they take? Like what determines what we say to ourselves and why? That story begins with our caretakers who are, you know, their voices are, are getting inside our heads when we're young. And then as we grow older, our peers have more influence and then our community, but that's culture. That's culture impacting how how we think about our lives and the implications that that has have been well documented and they're powerful. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting coming back again to the the concept of what is self. Mm-hmm. You know, you are are indivisible from your environmental conditions that have cultivated and formed your mind and your expression. And and you know, me posing this question or you choosing that shirt or, you know, anything, everything I'm about to say, do, think has already pre-set somewhere inside of my, my, my brain, my mind. I think that, do you know what the term for that is? Like our decisions are made, like, I think it's some fraction of time before they actually come out seconds or something like that. Have you, have you heard this? Yeah. So this is, you know, this argument's often mustered in the context of whether, whether things like free will actually exist and that's often debated. But basically I think that in simple terms, the idea you're expressing is that there are computations happening in your brain that are giving rise to what you do in this world. So there are all of these different different, you know, calculations occurring at any given moment in time. And your brain is amalgamating all those, all those different bits of information. And that has implications for what we say and, and what we do, which to me makes a great deal of sense. You know, that's something has to influence how we, we behave and the brain is, is doing that. And there's a temporal precedence to how that all occurs. I want to share about something that has absolutely knocked my socks off that is imbibing 
ketone esters, particularly ketone IQ. So ketone bodies are these things that we create when we push ourselves to our metabolic limits. They are essentially nature's super fuel and uh, they feel fantastic. If you've ever been in a place where you've fasted for an extended period of time, you start to have this really amazing, brilliant clarity, these really high levels of energy. You just feel very light, you feel very yourself, you feel very clear. And I was immensely surprised that just by taking a few servings of Ketone IQ, uh, I really did experience similar sensations of an extended fast, sensation of mental clarity, focus, um, and also really excellent sustained energy. So really good for going for a run or training or something of the sort. And that is why HVMN has an active $6 million contract with the US Special Operations Command because this stuff works. Per mention, I'm a convert, I'm a believer. I think this stuff is very interesting. I really enjoy it. I think you will like it as well and you can get yourself a 20% discount by going to ketone-iq Dot com and use promo code align 20 that's ketone k-e-t-o-n-e dash iq dot com and use promo code align 20 for a 20 percent discount if you do not love this you can get your money back you've got nothing to lose i think this is absolutely worth investigating and uh, just seeing what your experience is my experience was uh, much more impressive than i was anticipating so i hope you guys enjoy it that's it that's all So where do you stand in the discussion around sovereignty and free will and things of the sort? Do you think most of your decisions are predestined based off of like you're just the dominoes are all kind of set up. You're just kind of slowly falling through them. I think that the subjective experience of it is occurring after many decisions are often made, but that that doesn't mean that we don't have the ability to intervene. We're making choices all the time and those choices are are feeding back to impact what we what we do next. And so if the question is, are, are some of those choices conscious? I think some of them actually are conscious because we are manipulating information in real time. So I think people do, I think free will does, does exist. Yeah. I, I mean, um, I feel like- this, How about you? That, well, I mean, I think this idea kind of goes into just like head scratching, but even- a, a person it gets very it gets very circular uh, yeah yeah eventually like okay well we should probably just go build a house now i think <laughs> you know or like <laughs> beer, like do, yeah. do something but i mean so the obvious thing would be even the the filter that you perceive information and having the sensation of autonomy or sovereignty or or free will or any of that like those are all stories that have also been culturally imposed or indoctrinated upon you you could come from another place you know i like the idea as, as far as spreading compassion and kind of more like this connection and getting out of the individualism when you run into somebody mm -hmm. that you think is a, a jerk or you know you don't like them the reality would be that if you came from the exact same mother father born at the same time ate the same food like in the same environmental conditions you would you would be that person so the thoughts that just make you cringe those ideas that are so powerful to make your physiology shape, you know, change shape is in fact, like absolutely accessible by you if you were raised in those same conditions. So I don't know if I said anything there, but so I, I lean kind of more on the side of 
I, I think that we are playing, most of us as conditions come, we're playing, you know, there's like some algorithm of processing information and we have like the best scenario. Okay, cool. You have A, B, C, D, E, F. And then we have this processing system that says, cool, I go C. Processing system says, cool, I go D. And then eventually that, you know, that forms your life and your wife and your job and your, anyways, I'm entering into head scratching territory. I apologize. Does any what do you what do you think? Of, do you have any <laughs> thoughts on that? It's okay, it's okay if you don't. You just move on. Well, I I think we're more or less aligned in the sense that there are experiences in the world are are certainly dictating how we think, feel, and behave at any given moment in time, right? So the brain is is using like everything that has happened to us provides us with a rich source of information that helps us navigate the world in theory effectively. But this is a flexible system. We are not beholden to like reflexive reactions and like this happens and then we react. Like there is the opportunity to intervene. And and that's that's what I, you know, equate with having some agency. I mean, think about for example, the automatic thoughts that so many of us have at times which are are dysfunctional. They're not productive. You know, the cognitive approach in in psychology which has helped countless people doesn't work for everyone but it has worked for a lot of people the whole premise is it's this three-step model something happens and then there's your interpretation of what happens and then there's the response right and what the cognitive model does is it it changes your interpretation of the situation and changes your response so you have the ability to reframe how you think about something like you have the choice to do that and I think that choice for many people is experiences a sense of agency. Now, whether that's actually free will or not, I think I've read the debates on both sides, and I think a lot of it ends up ends up just spinning, or to use oh, a head scratching yeah. term. But yeah, but I think it yeah, is. Um, but that's a capacity that we uniquely possess in in um, you know in the animal world. But so so to come into that point, it seems like most people would would prefer to occupy that higher agency space with more regularity. And I, I feel like that agency space comes with stillness. When you are wrapped up in like the chatter, then you are reactionary and you really are just a pinball just being smacked around and you're just, you're just reactionary, reactionary, reactionary. There's no real sovereignty or choice in that. But if you can start to calm the water a bit, suddenly there's enough stillness and you can like see like metaphor but you like see deeper into the water and you know suddenly like oh it's like information but it, you need to be able to be okay with stillness i guess well you know i think i think the stillness is one one tool that can be really helpful but one of the ideas i like to try to convey is that i don't think there's any one tool that works for everyone and you know, we often talk about single tools, and I think that can limit us because there's so many different tools that we evolve to possess to help us with the chatter. And they can take really different forms. So I think stillness is one, and I've certainly worked on on doing that in my own life. And Yeah, I mean like metaphoric stuff, not literally like your body's, you know, like you're meditating. That's not what I meant. Yeah, no, I no, I get it. I yeah. The yeah. ability to slow down and 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 also I'm I'm guessing also just recognize that thoughts aren't necessarily you and to essentially quiet things down is that is that fair that's yeah that's I, that's kind of what i mean by, by stillness like the, that quietness yeah. to be able to perceive the new scenario as it is as opposed to having all of your filters upon it 
Yeah, I mean, so I guess I guess that's an endpoint that you're saying as a, as the opposite of chatter, which which makes sense. I want to take a moment and share something that has been a game changer for my life and my training that is taking essential amino acids from Keon. You probably know that the human body is mostly water. What you probably do not know is that everything else in your body is about 50% amino acids. These building blocks of life are essential for health and fitness. No matter how you like to move, whatever you do to stay fit, amino acids are essential. This is why Keon Aminos is my fundamental supplement for fitness. I drink them every day for energy, muscle, and recovery. Keon Aminos is backed by over 20 years of clinical research, has the highest quality ingredients, no fillers or junk. They've undergone rigorous testing and tastes amazing with all natural flavors. So if you want to naturally boost energy, build lean muscle, and enhance athletic recovery, you got to get Keon Aminos. And you can now save 20% on monthly deliveries and 10% on one-time purchases. Just go to getkeon.com slash align. That is G-E-T-K-I-O-N dot com slash align, A-L-I-G-N. That's 20% off on monthly deliveries and 10% off on one-time purchases. Go to getkeon.com slash align. So what are some, some tools that you would recommend to kind of finding that point. And maybe that point that I'm describing isn't any promised land and I'm like over, you know, glorifying this, this place of quietness or stillness, but no, I think, I think finding a, uh, I think what you're describing and, and, and where I misunderstood you initially was that stillness is the end point, right? And it's the, it's the counterweight to the noisiness of chatter, right? It's, it's being able to not be, you know, stuck in this hamster wheel of thought where you're running, 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 you can't stop thinking about something. You just, it's quiet. And I, and that is one, one alternative to chatter. Interestingly, it's not the only alternative, right? Um, you could imagine there are lots of instances in which we use language silently to do glorious things like innovate and fantasize and savor. And that's not a quiet mind. That's just a mind filled with pleasant conversations. And I think that's useful too. You know, we don't always have to be bereft of, of verbal thoughts. There are some verbal thoughts that can be quite like, I really value savoring certain emotional experiences, fantasizing about future things, planning, and all of that I would not describe as stillness, but just beneficial conversations rather than the harmful ones, which, which are what I call chatter. Um, does that, what do you think about that? Yeah. Well, so no, I was going to, I was going to throw so- it back to you. Yeah. So, so yes. And it's, again, it's like, I guess like semantics of like stillness and all that stuff. But so I think in those moments of having those, those really deep conversations or, or you're just, you're at the bar and you know, there's a sports game going on and you're throwing your hands up in the air, or, you know, all of those things, there's a lack of distraction. Yes. You know, so that's the thing is you're on a thread. We love to be on a thread. It's not to say like, there's no threads. Yes. It's like, no, but we just want to be on a right. thread. That's right. And that's, that's right. I think yeah. that's, the, okay. I think we're, that's the thing. Yeah. We're, 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 we're on the same page and the, and the chatter gets you off the thread basically. Um, yeah. Now you, you can't engage four threads in, in the moment. Yeah. Or, or 14,000 <laughs> right. all talking at the same time. Yeah. So I think we're thinking about this in a very compatible way. So what are tools? There are lots of them. You know, I, I talk about 26 different ones. I, I won't tell you about them all. 
I will say a few things. I think different tools work for different people in different situations. It's often not a case of using one tool. We've done some recent research where we find that the people who fare best in terms of their experience of chatter are folks who use combinations of healthy tools. They don't, they don't restrict themselves to doing just one thing. They'll do four or five. And I think a big challenge that everyone faces is to figure out what tools work best for them. Uh, so I like to divide this world of tools into three three buckets, things you could do on your own, relationship tools, and then environmental tools. And maybe maybe we start in reverse, since we already talked a little bit about the environmental tools. Certainly enhancing your exposure to green spaces can help restore your attention. Seeking out those awe-inspiring experiences, that's another way of helping manage a chatter from the outside. And, and actually, um, a tool that I actually discovered that I do, but wasn't aware of it till I started writing the book was organizing. You know, one of the things that for, for me, one of the things that's always been interesting is I'm not, I like to think of myself as an organized thinker, but when it comes to my surroundings and my wife's always yelling at me, there's like, like a, a trail of clothing from the shower through my bedroom down to my office. Right. And like, I'm the same way all over the place. You're yeah. the same way, but here's what's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if this happens to you. When I experience chatter, I start putting stuff away. Like I organize stuff. I, I, I fold my clothing. And turns out that many people do, – do you ever do that, by the way? For sure. I think that's it's a way of, of – I and mean, you see that a lot of times when people are like really, I don't know, OCD, neat freak, whatever. It's like, do you maybe feel a little out of control in some aspect of your life? <laughs> Not to say that that that's has right. to be, but for that's me, right. and- I think that's the case. Well, so this is this is what's I find this just so so remarkably interesting. When you're experiencing chatter, you don't feel like you're in control of your thoughts and feelings, right? Your, your thoughts are taking hold of you. And what we've learned is that you can compensate for not feeling in control in one domain by exerting control elsewhere. It's a process that we call compensatory control. And so organizing and cleaning up your spaces, like that's one way to do it. Another way to do this is by performing a ritual. So you see lots of athletes perform rituals in stressful situations. Or if you look you know, at cultures around the world, when they're dealing with really stressful, chatter-provoking experiences like the death of a loved one, our cultures prescribe rituals to engage in during those moments. What is a ritual? A ritual is a rigid sequence of behaviors that, that are infused with meaning. So we do the same thing every single time. And the specific steps that comprise that ritual Sometimes they make no sense, like why they're related, but but they're you perform them as a whole, and they they together have real meaning. So you know, I've got some personal rituals. Like every Saturday, I'll go to the gym, then the farmers market, make breakfast for the kids, and we eat together. And you now the gym and the farmers market don't necessarily go hand in hand, but they do for me. And I always do those steps in the same sequence, and it's a time for resetting and connecting that has deep significance to me in my life. And that gives me a sense of control because that ritual is under my control. And so that's another tool you can use. Um, that's something you could do on your own or, or with other people. But, but those are, so those are some environmental tools. You know, other people are great resource or a tremendous liability when it comes to our chatter. Um, and I think that's really important to point out to folks because our culture often tells us that when you're experiencing real distress, that you should just find someone to express your emotions, to just vent your feelings. And there's been a lot of research on this, and it turns out that venting your emotions 
just talking about that chatter to someone else, that can be really good for strengthening the, the friendship bonds between people. But if all you do is vent, that actually doesn't help you attain the stillness that you were talking about earlier. In fact, in studies, like after people vent about their emotions, they leave just as upset, if not more upset when they're done talking than when they started. Because all they've done in the conversation is ping pong back and forth, pinball back and forth on the negativity. So, you know, the best conversations with other people when it comes to chatter involve finding someone to express your emotions to a little bit. It is important to connect and empathize with other people, but then you hopefully are talking to someone who can help, help you broaden your perspective, help you attain that level of insight that ultimately lets you work through the problem in a way that nips it in the bud. And, and not everyone that we're close to in this world is skilled at doing that. So there are a lot of people that I know and love. I never talked about my chatter because I know all they're going to do is get me to rehash it. They think that's going to help me and it won't. Instead, I know there are three or four people I can really turn to who are skilled at, at doing both of these things that I'm describing. They listen, they take time to learn, and then they help work with me to help shift my thinking. And, and that's an invaluable resource I possess. Yeah, that, that all makes a ton of sense. So one of the things I was excited about in the first aspect of that was the idea that sometimes when people are really neat, well-kempt, or successful, or, in, or muscular, or intellectually developed, or any of those things, oftentimes I think that... Nothing, the, nothing that describes me, basically. <laughs> right. The idea <laughs> on the face of that would be like, oh, that person is just winning. They're just killing it. Sweet. Right. Like they don't need any help. They don't like they're good. You know, maybe I could like envy them or maybe I could resent them or something like that. But like they're, they're certainly good. And then it's interesting because I think that we have a lot of different ways of self-soothing. You know, when someone's having a conversation, I think it's I find it to be so beautiful to see someone like holding themselves, you know, or like rubbing their thighs or something. And it's like, oh, like what a beautiful yeah. thing. Like the, like the human animal. Has, there's something kind of building up and they're going through this self-soothing process, which I could be projecting, could be totally incorrect, but I, I feel that with myself. It's interesting to extend that perhaps like self-soothing out into like organizing a table, you know, or your, your, your clothing. Yeah. Well, well, a couple of things I want to say about that. So like, yeah, organizing your clothing seems quite different from self-soothing. And on the one hand, they are different tools. But on the other hand, they're both tools that we evolved to possess to manage our chatter. I think that we limit ourselves as a culture quite a bit when it comes to dealing with chatter. I think chatter is one of the big problems we face as a species. And I, I say that not to be hyperbolic. I mean, I say that based on what I know about what chatter does to us. It, it's a trillion dollar problem for the global economy. It makes it hard for us to think and perform. That's a World Health Organization statistic, you know, the impact that anxiety and depression has on, on the economy. And we know chatter fuels those states. We know chatter can create friction in our relationships with other people and it can damage our physical health. So thinking, performing, relationships and health, these are things that people care a great deal about. And yet when you look for solutions out there in the world, often, often it's, you know, it's one thing you can do, you know, meditate or focus on the now or, you know, talk to someone. All of those things when done properly can be helpful. And so can many, many other things too. I think we evolve the capacity to rein in our chatter in all of these different ways, because depending on the situation, we need different tools. Sometimes we need to clean up the kitchen table. Other times we need to pat ourselves, pat ourselves on the back. And, and a lot of the time we need to do both 
maybe even at the same time if we're really, really skilled. Just another point you asked if you're projecting about the self-soothing. I actually talk a little bit about this in the book, and I love this research. Touch, what I like to call affectionate but not creepy touch, is is actually a very useful chatter-fighting tool. You know, touch is one of the most primitive tools we have for managing our emotional lives. If you think of what happens when a baby's born into the world, we we have them engage in skin-to-skin contact. We take the naked baby, we put it on the mother's chest, right? And there's research which shows that this kind of affectionate touch can help us in two ways. There's this automatic benefit that t- affectionate touch has. It when, when our skin receptors code for affectionate touch, that releases a cascade of stress-fighting chemicals. And on the, the more conscious end of the spectrum, when someone gives us a hug or pats us on the back, as long as it's wanted, and that's an important caveat, that reminds us at a conscious level that, hey, there's someone here who actually cares about us. And and that set of thoughts can be really powerful too. So I would not underestimate or undervalue the power of an affectionate embrace. But you just got to be careful in in the workplace with how you do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, and I actually included a part about this. I have a whole chapter in my book called, I don't know what we call it, Touch, touch power of touch or something like that, but it's about touch and, you know, how it impacts our physiology. And, and one of the, the, the studies that I referenced in there was from, I think it was from university of Miami and the professor or the researcher was called Dr. Tiffany field. I don't know if you're familiar with her at all, but she's big in like the touch, Mm -hmm. touch world. And they found that Mm -hmm. preemies babies that were premature that were in incubators that had, you know, in like this vacuum, no, no contact by just adding it was 15 minutes of touch three times a day. I believe they ended up increasing their weight by, I think it was like 43% faster than everyone else. And they were released from mm-hmm. the incubator sooner. And, you know, it's pretty interesting how it's, it's this, this touch. It's like, it seems like it sends the, what you just said, it sends the signal to you that you're safe. It's okay to rest and digest and repair because you're taken care of. And I don't, it's, I mean, we, th- we think of nutrients as just being like, you know, sandwiches and protein smoothies but i think you know nutrients are conversation the, the, the concept of where we gather nutrients to grow i think it's it's much broader than just what we put into our face and if we're stuck up in our chatter you know the gestures and the mannerisms and all the information that we're gathering in a person that is on on a single thread as opposed to on fourteen thousand, or you know has more, you know less of the chatter thing going on they're able to pick up those subtle cues and suddenly that subconscious mind that is the iceberg beneath the ocean as opposed to like the little peak can actually, I don't know, I think I'm getting too metaphorical, but I feel like that's like, we're so much smarter than I think we give ourselves credit credit for, or so much like deeper or wiser. I think we all have access to that. It's just a matter of, you know, you know getting a relationship with it, with the chatter. I don't, I don't like saying Yeah, like I mean, what you, you just, whatever. you nailed it. I mean, we all have that capacity. So, so we actually have a name. We've named this phenomenon. Um, it's called Solomon's Paradox, this idea that we've got the ability to, to, to think wisely, to be wise, but we often just have trouble mustering that capacity when it comes to our own life when we're struggling with chatter. So it's named after the Bible's King Solomon, in case you want to put the background, um, who is probably one of the most wise figures in the history of civilization, right? Like when you think of who is a a wise person, it's King Solomon, he's synonymous with wisdom. But if you look carefully at his life, he was wise when it came to giving advice to other people. 
but he made a rash of really bad decisions when it came to his own life. He got caught up in these like love octagons with all of these different women, and they start, and you know, it ultimately led to his kingdom's demise. So he could reason wisely for others, but had trouble doing it for himself. And the the space that I like to work in and think about is, all right, if we know we're capable of thinking wisely, but just aren't doing it when it comes to our chatter, what are the tools that exist to help us access that that ability to be wise for ourselves? And so we talked about a bunch. We didn't we didn't talk about the things you could do on your own very much. I guess the rituals and cleaning that that counts. Um, but also there are like all of these distancing tools, these tools that we have that allow us to step outside of ourselves and think about ourselves more objectively that can be really helpful in reigning in the chatter. You know, that's one of the things that meditation is often thought to help us do, learn how to adopt this detached perspective. But it turns out there are lots of ways of activating that perspective that don't involve meditation. Um, and and that are likewise quite effective. And so I spend a lot of time talking about that stuff too. Yeah. I want to take a moment and share one of my absolute favorite beverages that I create before going to bed. That is a Organifi Gold Blend Latte. I make the latte part. I pour a scoop of Organifi Gold Powder into some coconut milk or whatever kind of milk of choice is. I heat it up, I stir it up, and it is absolutely astonishingly delicious and is immensely supportive for reducing inflammation, increasing recovery, uh, and increasing your depth and quality of sleep. Contains turmeric, reishi mushrooms, ginger, uh, and a variety of other delicious ingredients that all support rest, relaxation, recovery, and repair while providing a nutritious beverage. I really love this stuff. I think you guys are gonna enjoy it as well. And perhaps the greatest part, you will get a 20% discount by going to Organifi.com slash align. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash align. Get yourself a 20% discount. If you don't absolutely love the product, they have a 100% money back guarantee. So you got absolutely nothing to lose. I think you guys are gonna really enjoy this. It is highly delicious and very nutritious. Organifi.com slash align. I'm going to take a moment and share a quick bedside routine that I've been utilizing, which also relates to a question I have for you. And listen carefully to the end, as this is a special offer which includes free gifts. If I ask you, what is the number one health problem people from all over the world are facing? What would you think that is? If you guessed sleep, you'd be absolutely right. Honestly, the majority of people are lacking energy throughout the day, but a lack of energy is a symptom of a bigger problem that is very difficult to gain control over, and that problem is sleep. Something I've been utilizing that I've been absolutely loving for sleep is magnesium, specifically mag breakthrough. What I love about this stuff is it contains all seven essential forms of magnesium. I sometimes can be a little bit resistant to eating too much supplements, but magnesium is one of those ones that it is just not in our modern day soil. So I do highly recommend getting yourself some magnesium. I've been taking it every day for quite a long time. And also 
mag breakthrough is including free bottles of other goodness full line of digestive health products including their powerful digestive enzymes masszymes their patented probiotic p3om and their hcl product to alleviate heartburn and acid reflux that means you're getting free products to try that will support your digestive system so you experience less bloating and gas throughout the day and you also are going to have an optimized night's sleep all you got to do is go to magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast you get 10 percent off of your magnesium and the first thousand customers will also be getting themselves a bottle of masszymes p3om and hcl it is a ridiculous deal it will absolutely improve your life and it's a hundred percent money back guarantee it's a no-brainer magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast is, is there any that you could break down now or should we just oh yeah sure i, I mean i'll give you some of my favorites or probably about a dozen of them um distant self-talk for me is a game changer you know all right ethan how are you going to manage this language automatically switches our perspectives and that can be very helpful in the heat of the moment uh something that i call temporal distancing which involves thinking about how you you're going to feel about something you're experiencing chatter about in the future i, I i'll use this when i wake up at at 2 a.m. It, it happens. Um, well, we talked about that before. Have we talked about that one? I forget. No, that was somebody else. About the 2 a.m.? That was someone no. else. All right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, do, do you ever, do you ever, well, you know, we, 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 we went in so many loops here. Do you ever, yeah. um, you ever wake up at 2 a.m. with some of the chatter? <sighs> yeah, sometimes two. I go through different stages. Two has been common. Oftentimes it's four. Around 4 a.m. I'll get up. <laughs> Got it. But it happens, right? Like just randomly. Again, it goes. Yeah. Yeah, it stages. Yeah, and it goes back to that idea of things just trigger. We're not, we're not in control of it. This happens to me once a month. And before I had a plan for dealing with it, I'd be, oh, crap. And then I'd be up. I'd be miserable. Now I have a very specific plan. As soon as I you know, experience that moment of terror, I just remind myself, you're going to feel way better about this tomorrow morning. Why do I say that to myself? Because it's the truth. It is always the case that when I wake up the next morning, I have the ability to see the bigger picture in a way that I don't when my brain is essentially sleeping at night. So that's temporal distancing. How are you going to feel about this thing that, that's bugging you a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now? That's a small switch shift in perspective that can really help you put what you're going through in context that can be useful. So I'll do those two things. Sometimes I'll actually go back in time. I won't just go forward. I'll go back. I do this with COVID a lot. You know, the distress of COVID. Oh my God, my kids are home again. We're still not traveling. Well, what was it like during the Spanish pandemic of 1918 or the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages? Like, turns out much, much worse back then than it is now. And that has a way of putting my circumstances in perspective, too. These are small shifts that can take the edge off in ways that help me attain the kind of stillness that you're talking about. So those are two things, plenty other other tools that are out there too, but those are two that I use a lot. Yeah, and then I, I'd imagine you could also stack those. So you could do the distant self-talk while temporally distancing. So you could say- Exactly, and, and in fact, I do that. Like, All right, Ethan. Hey, Ethan, you know, you're gonna feel better after totally. this. That's cool. I, uh, we're, we're, we're gonna wrap this thing up. Uh, kind of soon because we you we both have a well whatever I I got a thing in like eighteen minutes 
but I so enjoy these conversations. These are like my favorite kinds of conversations. I so I, I so greatly appreciate you making time for it. Um, the the thing that I was I was thinking that's have you had the scenario where you're embarrassed to be talking to yourself? Like you're walking down the street and you're like talking to yourself, and then someone sees you and you're like, oh, you kind of shut up and you're like, oh man, you feel like ashamed. Well, <laughs> yeah, I have two caveats, F. You know, the talking to yourself stuff. <laughs> When possible, you want, you want to do it silently in your head. So all the studies we've done, sure. when I'm doing distance self-talk or temporal distancing, I'm usually doing it silently in my head. Okay. But, okay. you know, I, actually earlier today, I was just walking around the house and I was I was, re- I was rehearsing what I was going to say to some, about a presentation I have. And my youngest daughter's like, who are you talking to? You're weird. So... <laughs> Yeah, I don't think you want to talk to yourself out loud in front of other people that violate social norms in ways that can have some negative implications. But but if you find it helpful to do it in the confines of your own home, like, you know, go for it. Has there been any research on, on that? Shockingly little. Shockingly as, little. As far as like audible self-talk compared to just internal? That's interesting. Shockingly I never thought of that. little. Yeah. So a lot of okay. people report anecdotally that you know, they'll go through a red light and say something to themselves. And it's interesting, right? They're talking to themselves in contexts that seemingly require some self control All right, here's how you need, here's what you need to do. Like when we're trying to regulate ourselves. Um, but yeah, there's very little work on talking out loud. Most of the work on self-talk has been silent self-talk. Those internal mm-hmm. conversations we have when we're sitting in, you know, the lecture hall, but verbalizing things in our own mind rather than listening to someone else. The last little little bit that I'd be curious to to pick your mind uh, about would be there's obviously a big conversation is like gratitude and your gratitude list and it's shown to do all these have these like tangible physiological effects and effect optimism and you know, all these things and I, I think a part of that this kind of ties back to the choice to not just just commiserate in, in, you know, with, in your woes with somebody else and just keep on talking yourself in circles of, of the thing that you're, you're bummed out about. Cause I think it's, there's a, it's a bandwidth issue. You only have so much bandwidth for so much internal dialogue. And so if you Absolutely. choose to be within the bandwidth of the negative and quotation stuff, then that's your choice. Here you are. You can also choose to flip the channel and, and start to utilize this other, this other version of bandwidth, but within the, the conversation of gratitude, there's a lot of debate of how to gratitude optimally. You know, so do you gratitude, mm. do you do a list? Do you gratitude, do you do a story that, you know, where there's actually like emotion tied to it? Do you like, do you have any sense or research or, 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 or perspective on that? Well, I haven't done any research firsthand on gratitude. I think that if we're talking here, not about, you know, which of these different methods have shown to have the largest effects, assuming that there could be value in lots of these different gratitude exercises. I think the question that you want to ask yourself is what works best for me? What am I most likely to do and what makes me feel best? Because some gratitude exercises are, are quite, quite demanding. Um, you know, a little bit of trivia. I was actually, so part of the, this, the gratitude exercise idea, I think the person who popularized it was Marty Seligman. Uh, the founder of positive psychology. I was a, a, an undergrad at Penn where he he was teaching and I took the first class he taught on this topic and we did the first gratitude letter exercise in the class I took and it was an incredibly moving experience. We wrote these letters to other people for why we were grateful to them and we all felt really moved by doing that. 
But those, those letters weren't trivial to write. They took a lot of time. So I think when recognizing the busy lives that we all face, the question is, well, what, what practices can we give people that are as effortless as possible and likely to have the most impact? I think that's the formula for getting the, the biggest, you know, ROI, if we want to use that phrase, return on investment. Like, how can we find things that you could do easily that make a difference? I think letters are probably at one end of the spectrum, but, you know, maybe just reflective exercises, thinking about what you're grateful for in your life can be quite useful. Along these lines, I'll just say one other tool for promoting positivity, not necessarily ending chatter, but promoting positivity that I think is quite useful and easy to do is help other people to help yourself. And that may there's something nice about this tool, right? Because there's like double benefit. You are bona fide helping other people, but you are deriving benefits as a result of doing that as well. And there's something really, really nice about that. Um, and there's a lot of research which shows that actually just doing good for others can be be quite a boon to your own well-being. So, um, so that's another another tool to put in your toolbox. Yeah. Thank you so much, man. I just a, a reflection to you. You strike me as someone that um, I don't know you have like a, a really beautiful depth and presence and like non judgmental style of listening that obviously you've cultivated over the years. And uh, it's really beautiful. So I, I really appreciate getting to share these moments with you. Um, well, I, I appreciate people... it too, uh, in the spirit of, of cutting you off because of the, the delay yeah. on the end, so the delay, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, exactly. but, but, but wonderful, <laughs> wonderfully rich conversation and great, great <laughs> questions. Really great fun. Yeah. You were going to ask me where people can find me though. Well, find the, find the, find the book particularly, cause I think it's an incredible tool and then, um, and then yeah, learn more about your work and, and yeah, I, f- I feel, I feel really grateful that you exist because I, I feel like this conversation and the, the work that you bring is really important. Oh, well, I, I, that, that does mean a great deal. And the feeling is mutual. And on that lovey-dovey note, if folks want to learn more or find out information about the book or me, there's actually one place you could go, www.ethancrosswithak.com. And you get as much info as you're looking for there. Every time I say that, I feel like an infomercial, by the way, but, um, <laughs> but that's the location. Yeah. Cool. Thank you, ma'am. Anything else? We should leave the conversation. No, I think I think our, we covered our... it. L- lots of fun. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, if uh, yeah, I'd be happy to do part two at some point. Keep on going down. I feel like I can continue wandering down this path of you know the mind. Oh, I never asked you. What's your working definition of the mind? Oh. <laughs> To be continued. <laughs> um, <laughs> you have like a, I've asked everybody that's like psychologist, psycho something. I'm like I'm like oftentimes it's the very first question of the podcast is what what is the mind because I think it's such a subjective concept. Yeah, um, well you know it's a, it's a, it's like a it's a question about like what is the self. Um, it's a it's a deceptively simple question. So I think the mind is it's a product of the brain, which of course is taking information from all over your body and inputs from your experience. And the mind is, is essentially the, the computer that governs your existence that allows you to navigate the world. And you yourself are conscious of very, very few aspects of, about how that mind works. Most of it's happening without you thinking. What is pain? Ah, 
the, the, these are these are <laughs> these are great great <laughs> questions. So um, actually, I've done research on pain, emotional pain, and how it relates to physical pain. We can have a whole can have a whole whole discussion on that. Yeah. Do you do you want? Well, yes, please. We should. Do, yeah. We, we should. Why don't we do a follow up? I mean, honestly, I, I mean, this was great fun, and yeah, yeah, we can keep on going. Yeah, I, I think it would be. I think it'd be great fun to do one. Pain is an amazing tool. I will just say of the mind that alerts us to danger. I actually talk about in the book people who are kids who are born into this world without the ability to experience pain due to a, a blip of genetics, and turns out they die young because they don't have information about when they're getting in trouble, right? Their hands pass the stove and they don't pull their hand away or they, they scratch their mosquito bites and don't stop even when they're infected. So pain's this really useful tool that we use to learn how to navigate this world well. And then we have this interesting experience of social pain that has piggybacked off of this physical pain system that we possess. So lots of people, when they're rejected, they often use the language, oh, I'm in pain, my feelings hurt. And there's some research which suggests that when we experience social pain, when, when we're excluded from others, that activates a, a type of pain response as well, because being connected to other people is so vitally important to us as a social species. So that's a, that's a little, little take on pain. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to set up and do a, do another one. I'd love to go just deeper into that conversation particularly. I think the term for the um, folks that can't feel can't don't feel stuff is congenital analgesia and one of the one of the parts of i think that's correct and then and then one of the reasons the issues with that 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 you know one may not expect is it's really important to feel discomfort because it keeps your body moving so moving lymphatic fluid and you know circulating all of the fluids inside of your body if you don't feel discomfort then you just kind of stick in a position it seems kind of awesome but it's actually the worst thing that can happen to a person but you know, so I wasn't aware of that that factoid, and I really like it. I think I'm going to use it. So thank you. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it touches on uh, such an incredibly important. It, it, it touches on such an important issue, right? Which is goes against this toxic positivity movement, which is like we evolved the, to experience these negative states for a reason. They help us. So let's not try to achieve this unattainable goal of and harmful goal of ridding our lives of negativity. Let's figure out how to manage our emotions more skillfully so we get the information we need from the negative states and then and then just move on and, and rid them. I think that should be the goal. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, thank you. Thank you again. I greatly appreciate it. Grab the book, Chatter. What is the subtitle of, of, of Chatter? The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It. Yeah. I um, Yeah, I'm just so grateful to per mention, have conversations like this. Appreciate you. And thank you all for tuning in. That's it. That's all. Over and out. Hope you guys devoured that conversation. If you did, you can share it on Instagram. Be like the place. You can tag me at a line podcast. Tag Ethan Cross as well. We'll love seeing the parts of the conversations that you really love. Really appreciate you guys subscribing to this so you get each week's episodes. And thank you for telling your friends. Thank you for implementing the information. And also you can jump over to the Align community, which is absolutely free. I'm in there every day. We post exclusive content. And it's all found at alignpodcast.com slash community. That's alignpodcast.com slash community.